This is Publishing Talks, a podcast about books and the publishing industry. I'm David Wilk, your host. Today I'm talking to Jeff Deutsch. He is the manager of Seminary Co-op Bookstores in Chicago. And Seminary Co-op is really two stores, which have been around for a really long time. Jeff, maybe you could talk a little bit about yourself first as a bookseller, and then we could talk about Seminary Co-op and how it functions in what I think is a really novel way. The stories are intertwined. So actually, I'm going to begin with the Seminary Co-op and and wind my way back uh, to it uh, through my own story. Uh, So I first visited the Seminary Co-op in 1994. Anyone who has been to the old store, it was in the basement of the Chicago Theological Seminary, sort of a singular experience of descending a staircase, a humble staircase uh, that led to this labyrinth of books, space like no other. Uh, did not seem like it was built for a bookstore because it wasn't. Um, and I remember very well how expansive that space felt to me despite how cramped it was. That expansiveness and the effect that the store had on my imagination and my sense of what's possible completely changed my life. Uh, Later that year, I became a bookseller for the first time. And uh, in the last 27 years now, with the exception of a two-year stint at an artist colony, all I've ever done career-wise was bookselling. I started with Barnes & Noble and worked there through the 90s, thoroughly enjoyed my time there, traveled a lot, kept moving, uh, moved out west, and then ended up as an assistant manager at a store in Seattle near the University of Washington, which had a full Loeb library, a bunch of PhDs on staff. And it was the first time where I uh, felt like I was in a space like the seminary co-op, which was uh, you know, store for serious readers that had a great browsing experience. Uh, and that store had well over 100,000 volumes and that the conversations among booksellers were uh, about ideas, but not in a didactic or specialized way, but in a, almost a joyful uh, way and really getting back to the core of why so many of us become readers and thinkers, which is that these questions have an urgency about how to live, how to be, what to do, and to be among the community, not just the booksellers, but the the patrons, uh, was incredible. And a realization of this hope that I had that I could somehow replicate the experience of the seminary co-op in a, a store that was not in the basement of a seminary in Chicago, because that's not where I was. I, from there, went to uh, first UC Berkeley for six years and ran their uh, campus bookstore and then down to Stanford University uh, for a couple of years uh, where I thought I would retire. Uh, that was, the, uh, as far as I was concerned, the best job in the industry. It was as stable a bookstore as any. The collection is incredible. Uh, there were uh, almost 80,000 volumes on the shelf. Stanford community is that kind of community, people who care about ideas and uh, amazing writers and thinkers come through. And uh, in 2013, my predecessor, Jack Sella, who built the seminary co-op into what 
uh, we all know and love today, was the manager for 43 years. He retired, uh, and there was a nationwide search for his successor, which I didn't think I could sleep at night if I didn't at least throw my hat in the ring. I didn't think I'd get it. Uh, if I got it, I didn't think I'd take it um, because I uh, was you know, living in Oakland and loving life out there. And sure enough, um, I applied and ended up here. It's been seven years now. And uh, in that time, uh, I, I'll say that it has been the most fulfilling work I can imagine, the most meaningful work I can imagine. Uh, it's been a special time for the bookstores. We moved from the basement of that seminary uh, down the street right before I started uh, and then uh, had a completely different feel to the store. But the books in the community came came with, with us. Uh, and the almost more important transition, not just the uh, physical space, but the actual uh, institution, which was founded as a uh, member-owned cooperative by students of the seminary was then transitioned into the first and only not-for-profit bookstore in the country whose mission is bookselling. Uh, and that's what we are today. That happened in 2019. Um, so that's the not-so-short version uh, of, of <laughs> no, the that's history. That's pretty good, Con- you know, considering how much, how many years you just covered. Um, yeah, that's a 27 years, right? <laughs> Um, well, right. so let me ask two kind of data point questions. What, when was the um, seminary co-op founded originally? Mm-hmm. 1961. Okay. So, so it's our 60th anniversary this year. Yeah. Well, happy anniversary. Um, mm-hmm. and, and of course, there, there has been, and it, maybe less so now, but there's been a fairly robust community of cooperative businesses in America. I mean, there mm-hmm. there still is a strong co-op movement. Um, That's right. And I well remember, you know, quite uh, several uh, other university bookstores have been co-ops. Um, some that mm-hmm. I've known no longer exist, um, mm-hmm. uh, or converted away from being co-ops. Um, so you're probably you may be the only one that has converted from co-op to nonprofit. Although I always sort of, you know, you kind of think of a co-op as being less oriented toward profit and more toward um, uh, its cons- customer base um, just by nature of the, you know, the, um, uh, the the business organization structure. Right, well, that's, it's an interesting point, right? We So we were a, a member-owned cooperative, uh, and so one would think that, and, and in some sense that's true, but the actual mission of the bookstore was to maximize shareholder value. Um, and that, in theory, was the case. But clearly, in practice, we lost money for years. Nobody was making good economic decisions. Uh, there was not a fiduciary oversight. And uh, and that's all for the best, because that's what, what created this bookstore that is so... Um, it's such a profound argument on behalf of itself, right? On behalf of its own existence. No one could have imagined that store. Uh, it, it developed almost organically and became, uh, from to my, to my mind, the most profound argument on behalf of this model of book selling. Uh, and we are almost trying to retroactively create a model that supports what the bookstore already 
accomplished, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And and I think that's one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you in the first place is that what by becoming a nonprofit and becoming mission driven, you've you still are acting in a business like way, but the mission mm-hmm. becomes the primary goal rather than, you know, shareholders. That's right. And I think that that kind of, it has to resonate for people who are in the book business on some level. And that is, as you discussed, um, people are drawn to books, not because they think they can make a lot of money on them. Um, it, right. You know, I think that, yes, there are certainly entrepreneurial um, um, elements in business. And so we certainly have seen people who have thought that they could make money in publishing or in book selling or in some other element of the book business, rights, you know, licenses, copyright holding, all those things. They are business opportunities. Mm-hmm. But at the core, what differentiates books and publishing and book selling is this other value that could be cultural, could be intellectual, or could be um, creative, could be philosophical. There are all these values that, of course, contribute right. to the value of society, which is sort of the irony of it is, you know, money is not the only value in society. In fact, it should be the other way around, that money should <laughs> serve the values of society rather than be the goal itself. Um, at least some of us think that. But in <laughs> what you're doing by m- defining the business as mission-driven, and I think that's better even to me than saying nonprofit, it's to say mission-driven. And that, you know, as you and I talked at one point, um, there are other corollaries in the world for um, mission-driven businesses to be like the seminary co-op. But in the book business, Mm -hmm. we've not really fully explored that um, or even thought it through how it could alter the business structures, how it could change the way we think about the value and meaning of publishing or of books in a commercial sphere. Um, So there's that part. But then the other thing that I think is really interesting, because we can then compare, um, say, the seminary co-op and the idea of there being other nonprofit mission-driven bookstores uh, as the equivalent to um, non-commercial theater, you know, mm-hmm. that exists side by side with commercial theater. I mean, there's there's room for both and they have different missions, literally, but they also, mm-hmm. you can produce the same play in two different theaters. One would be nonprofit, one would be for profit. So they're not, That's right. you're not suggesting, I don't think so, I mean, I'm putting words in your mouth, but you and and everyone at the, at the seminary co-op are not proposing that all retail book selling should be converted to a mission-driven model. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So it obviously affects how you interact in and operate your business within the community. I think that's, you know, an interesting area for discussion. But another part of this, which, you know, got me, I think, to talk to you in the first place, was that you recently gave a talk in which you proposed that um, book selling itself could be rethought. Mm-hmm. And I really, this is something I think is really important. I think you've hit on something that's immensely crucial. And I wondered if you could maybe, you could repeat here 
what you said when you gave that talk. I think it was to book industry, you know, BISG. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that uh, the point about there being stores, but the, our argument is not that every bookstore should operate in this way is right. And it's really a, on some level, it's a very humble argument, which is that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the bookstore itself, the seminary co-op is its own argument on behalf of uh, itself. Uh, what does that mean? So really uh, for anyone who has not been to the, any of your listeners who have not been to the bookstore, it's not just the size of it that makes it uh, unique. So 100,000 volumes. It's not just what we carry, which are small press, university presses, uh, mostly uh, either scholarly or, uh, you know, quote unquote, serious books, uh, uh, you know, tremendously uh, large literature and poetry section uh, from, you know, global literature. Uh, it's not just that either. It's an approach to book selling that privileges slowness, patience, the books that don't quote unquote earn their keep by selling copies quickly or in bulk can stay on the shelf until the reader that uh, they were destined to meet uh, uh, find, finds them and uh, liberates them from the shelf. So, you know, in, in the talk that you're referencing, I think the, you know, the question that I've been asking rhetorically and that we've been asking ourselves that led us to this conclusion is what do we need a bookstore for in the 21st century? Especially acknowledging that readers can buy books online, oftentimes easily, oftentimes relatively inexpensively. They don't need bookstores to buy books. What do they need bookstores for? And what do communities need bookstores for? And the answer to that question for us is unequivocally uh, unrelated to business. It's unrelated to the profits. It's, um, but what it is related to is the browsing experience and the value of being in a place devoted to books and only books. So one of the things that the co-op as a, a tagline uh, you know, prior to my arrival had was no coffee, no knickknacks, just books. And at a time <laughs> when bookstores are uh, having to supplement their income with non-book items, uh, and if you ask the American Booksellers Association uh, and their, aggre their aggregation of our financial statements, they'll tell you that if you want to be a profitable bookstore, at least 20% of what you sell should be non-book items. And I think that that is, whatever people do to make it work is totally fine. But I think it's wild to imagine that we have this industry devoted to books um, and it can be devoted to anything. It doesn't matter that it's books, but that the only way to make it is, you know, not to sell X, but to sell Y in order to support the industry that is ostensibly about X. But when you add the fact that it's books, and this is our cultural heritage, this is our uh, understanding of ourselves and the world around us, I mean, it's just, uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's unconscionable to think that we can't support this work without supplementing it with coffee or wine or um, whatever tchotchkes. And so we want to build deliberately uh, a model that supports what developed organically within the co-op. Uh, if we, and answer that question of what 
is the point of a bookstore in the 21st century and how do we build the models to support it so that we no longer have to build these workarounds, whether it be wine or uh, coffee or whatever, to support a bookstore. And furthermore, there's a recognition that the retailer's model, which is the difference between the cost and the list price, is the income that the retailer realizes and the value that they realize is not actually the value that they provide and it's not enough to sustain them. What is the value? The value is the browsing experience and it's the work of the bookseller. And the bookseller is an enthusiast. The bookseller filters these books, selects them, assembles them, and then sells them with enthusiasm and passion to a community. And that value is not measured by gross margin, which is what a retailer uses to measure their value. So let's build that deliberately. And uh, let's start with a 60-year-old institution whose existence, again, is its own argument for itself. Well, and that that idea, I think, should resonate. Now, I'm not sure who will hear this um, as we're talking about it, but if you're in the publishing business, it it probably resonates that the value that we would like to have from bookstores is the browsing experience. It is the communal sharing of a book experience. And of course, each publisher right. would like their books to be the ones that are on display and shared. And we also realize that the, um, you know, some of the contradictions that exist are that there are too many books at this point for any physical space. And which is, you know, mm -hmm. one of the reasons why online bookselling has become what it is, is that those booksellers, particularly the one whose name shall not be spoken, uh -huh. um, recognize well, they're not booksellers. Those, those uh, online retailers, we can call them, right. because they're certainly not booksellers. <laughs> but they recognized mm -hmm. they recognized early on that they could overcome the contradiction of the physical space. Of of not having a hundred percent availability of anything, not being able to allow a potential buyer to find all of the books that might be that they might be interested in, and of course they have their own contradiction because once you have fifteen million books to choose from, you then have a tyranny that makes it impossible for books to be discovered um, because there are too many right. of them. So. You know, it's sort of like a, um, you know, kind of struggling from it, 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 you know, to reference a book. Uh, it's a Goldilocks situation. Too little, too large, what's in between? And the just right is what we would be looking for, which is as many books as possible to be available in a store, um, you know, that would be suitable to a human mind being able to experience them without, you know, sensory overload and small enough to be <laughs> humane in a, uh, you know, you know, in a kind of, um, experiential way. And that kind of defines what a great bookstore can be. And of course that, that doesn't totally reference the individual booksellers who are making all of that possible. But I think what you've gotten to, what you've gotten at is that this value needs to be supported in some way or another and the current right. way is you you have to sell enough books 
to make a profit large enough to cover your rent, cost of goods, mm -hmm. and employees. And if you right. can't do that, as many, 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 many bookstores have learned, they cannot um, for whatever reasons. It's not always uh, business. It, it, being incapable of running a profitable business, there are sometimes circumstances outside of your control <clears throat> that alter the um, circumstance. And so from a publisher's point of view, if we value, truly value what you've proposed, then publishers ought to be able to find a way of subsidizing that cost in a meaningful way that represents value for them as well. And I think that's well, probably the business challenge for you as a bookseller in being able to talk about this with publishers. Now, as I understand it, there are some publishers who agree with you and who I think would like to see some change as well. Well, yeah, and I, I would, I would, if, if I may uh, interject, uh, it's actually not an argument we're making to the publishers, uh, and we don't see them as the primary uh, financiers of what we're trying to do. We actually are trying to make this argument with the publishers on behalf of this model to our communities and municipalities and foundations and individuals. We think this is an issue that um, is is one that's it's important to recognize that the work itself is a shared work that is not profitable. Um, now there are ways to make a living at it, but it's really not uh, like any other cultural work is not the point and should not have the vagaries of the quarterly earnings reports that the markets uh, spit out that will help us with a, a larger cultural heritage. And if we think about somebody like, Toni Morrison publishing uh, her first book and it doesn't do well. If we never hear from her again, because the market has dictated that no one wants to read this author, then what do we lose? Um, and really the argument on behalf of the publishers too, making these uneconomic decisions or, uh, you know, extra economic decisions, perhaps what, could we do as a community to support that work? What could we do uh, in, in recognition of the other cultural institutions that we've built? For instance, the library that is uh, astonishing to think that we were able to build that relatively recently too, uh, and say, we are all better off with bookish spaces and access to, to knowledge and stories. So we're going to build free public libraries in every city in this country. And I can't imagine a world in which that doesn't exist, any of us thinking that we could persuade uh, any municipality or each other to support this work, but we now can't imagine a world without them. Uh, and I have different, there's subtle arguments about where libraries have gone and what kind of like they've done so many of them have become community centers and access to internet and information and not a bookish space. So I think there's an important conversation there. There's also an important conversation about the difference between libraries and bookstores and there's, there are critically uh, important differences, but the idea that a city like San Francisco could give money, it was $100,000 to uh, independent bookstores, this is about three years ago now, uh, to acknowledge that with all of the wealth that that city was generating and 
uh, all of uh, how difficult it became to do cultural work in the city that they wanted to support the persistence of these gems in their community. And they gave money to a dozen plus independent bookstores. That's what we're arguing uh, is that this is something that we should all be financing, supporting, um, and acknowledging the importance of uh, not just the publishers and not just the authors and not just the agents right. and the people in the in, right. That's a key point because I had sort of automatically gone to business mind and, um, you know, right. you know, like, right. um, how publishers would work with booksellers in terms of redefining what a bookstore should be or can be. And you're right. Um, you have a different view that you've just opened my thinking up to. Um, and it sort of resonates in one, you know, in a couple of ways. One is I think about places like New York City, lacking the the number of bookstores that used to exist there, um, That's right. because the rents are too high. I think of That's New right. Haven, Connecticut, you know, where I went to college, uh -huh. and which was right. at one time rich with bookstores, literally rich, including a co-op, right? Including well, the Yale, yep, right. the Yale co-op did go out of business. Of course, it was selling mm -hmm. clothing and. God knows what sure. else at a certain point. It was not a bookstore anymore. Um, it was a department store with books. Right. But right. still, there were many bookstores. And New Haven only has 100,000 people. Uh, and it's mm -hmm. not growing. Um, you know, the number of bookstores that don't exist in culturally active, important places which could support a bookstore at one time leads you to think that those communities would in fact be uh, ripe for this argument. And although right. it is true, you know, as you know, just what you alluded to that, how hard it would be to imagine cre uh, getting communities to finance a library if there wasn't one, you know, in the same way, it is, you know, still a challenge to think about how, whether communities would be willing to take tax dollars for enhancing the cultural community, the cultural landscape. But there are also are nonprofits. I mean, we, you know, the many of those libraries that you're talking about were founded by uh, Andrew Carnegie. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, and even thinking large and small. So, um, you know, we, even before we went nonprofit, you know, we, we had a, a donor gave us $50,000 a $50, check with no tax deduction. But, but we, uh, granted it was during the pandemic, uh, but we raised almost $300,000 from individual donors giving about $120 a piece. City Lights booksellers ran a GoFundMe. They raised over half a million dollars in less than a week. Now, clearly, you know, it's once a generation that you would say, I'm doing that, going out of business uh, fundraiser. And at some point that, that's not feasible for, to be sustainable, but why not, right? Why? If it's valuable to give that $120, which is probably what an Amazon Prime membership costs, I don't know, but whatever it is, you know, you think nothing about giving it to Amazon to have the value that it supposedly provides. What if you gave that money to a bookstore to have the value that it uh, provides in the community? And I, I'll give you another really quick example that was uh, an interesting way of how, how people think from a business perspective even, but I had somebody at 57th Street Books, which is um, our uh, east wing of the store. We've got two, two bookstores, as you noted, uh, a wonderful, wonderful community bookstore. 
And they were from a real estate company in the neighborhood and they were wandering the store and taking pictures and enjoying the experience. And I overheard them having a conversation about a book that was um, $5 cheaper online uh, that they wanted. And they said, well, we'll, we'll just get it online. And I interrupted them and said, just asked like, hey, what, what, what are you taking pictures for? What are you doing? And they said, well, you know, we, we work for this real estate company and we have a bunch of apartments in the neighborhood and this is just a great community asset. We use it to market the, the uh, apartments and it's something that people really love about the community. And I said, well, certainly that's a, a value, right? I said, right. And if it's a $5, that's, that's the difference between, uh, you know, when you would decide to support a bookstore versus uh, someone online. And of course, and I wasn't being didactic or trying to make them feel bad about it, but it was this acknowledgement of there is, so much value that you're gleaning from this space and yet the five dollars feels to you like it's uh, somebody ripping you off and it's because of how we've thought about this that this is a retail product that you shop around and you find the cheapest price not recognizing that a space devoted to books that can help you discover and come together with other people around something you care about is actually the value and what you're really looking for no, it's true. And I think actually on a sort of macro level, I think we have missed that opportunity on some level to um, think about books on a, or ask people to think about books as not commodities. Um, right. You know, this is, we live in a world that commoditizes everything, every experience. That's right. Um, That's right. But books do carry i mean and we i you know we these are part of our, our conversations about books and what they mean in our culture we know they carry value in excess of their commercial value um that's right you know that on so many levels not just to a reader but to someone who values ideas and um and if you think about you know the you were sort of um, i think touching on this a little bit i was thinking about the inherent value given to books and the written word in our society goes back quite a long way. And if you want to, you know, even in, in American history, just if we look at America, um, books were absolutely integral to the founding of the United States as a country. Right. Um, right. You know, the, the, it's not just the reading of ideas, the reading and the ideas in, that inhered in yeah. those books, but it's, you know, books were given special meaning and you know the idea of copyright was invented in order to um both protect and benefit society um right you know so so it you know we we know it but i think that that we've there's a lost opportunity there that you know one could imagine even the entire book industry with or supporters from outside promoting the notion of book as meaningful book as important. Mm -hmm. um, you know, libra right. librarians don't really advertise. They are not able to do that. Um, booksellers don't really advertise because it costs so much. But, right. you know, like a, a, a kind of um, one of those late night public uh, spots on TV kind of, um, <laughs> you know, public service announcement kind of campaign yep. in behalf of books, ideas, thinking, reading, go to a library, you know, go to a bookstore either one just read books um you know right. they're they're important to the survival of our our culture our society and you know planetary humankind because so much of 
um, what the information that we need and the and the and the tools to think about that information. Um, you know, that people feel that there's too much information they can't figure out what to do. Read a book. <laughs> mm -hmm. But anyway, that's sort of simplistic. But I I do think that you know you've touched on something really important, and that is if there you know there is a community of nonprofit theater. It's supported by foundations, by individuals, um, and there are a variety of ways that that occurs. I remember, you know, I worked at the National Endowment for the Arts at one time in the literature program, and one of the things that mm -hmm. we always bemoaned was that in all of the performance um, arts, there are buildings. And if you're thinking about trying to raise money from a foundation or from wealthy individuals, uh, buildings are really helpful. You know that people can put right. their names on them. They can go to a right. performance. They can feel like they can see the physical um, evidence of their beneficence. And supporting authors with grants, which is what the you know the NEA did then and still does. You know there is there wasn't really a um, an infrastructure of of buildings, you know, of institutions with buildings in the, in the, um, nonprofit literary world, but there could be if, if there were right. nonprofit bookstores and if they were, um, promoted as carriers of culture in a different way than libraries. And I think it's important. You mentioned that before the differentiation between a bookstore and a library is meaningful and it should be valued that you know, we don't have to just say, well, you're either a nonprofit, that means you're a library, or you're a profit-making entity, that means you're a bookstore. That's right. That's right. Well, and, and again, like, you know, saying that we weren't asking for the publishers for help, we're, you know, we're also not asking, like, taxpayers to help if, it, if it's not a value. So, like, we really think that this is the sort of thing that, um, like, that we're all responsible for but also all like guilty of uh, so anyone who uh doesn't look for a deal somewhere or reads as exactly as much as they think they should right like most of us don't read as much as we'd like to uh, and find other ways to uh you know for our attention to be consumed uh so really i think that it's just important to say out loud that none of this is about uh you know shaming anyone's choices or uh trying to say that there's something especially noble about books that isn't noble about other sorts of uh, endeavors. Um, you know, there's a lot of tremendous value and this is one element of it. We just think it's underrepresented uh, in, in the conversation about what culture and community can uh, support. So do you, do you, so kind of in an actionable way, um, are you talking to other bookstores about the notion of nonprofit as a form, a formal structure? And have you heard from other people who have thought about starting bookstores, but would be in a way maybe more likely to succeed if they built a nonprofit, which is a different thought process as well. It still requires entrepreneurialism, but your, your stakeholders are much more actively involved. Right. I mean, there are tremendously creative booksellers in their 20s and 30s and early 40s that are uh, very interested in running bookstores, very capable, who don't see a viable career path. They don't see a, a viable financial model. Um, 
there's also a generation of booksellers who are retiring and uh, it's very difficult to uh, step into that role with the current models. So I, I am one of many booksellers who are trying to adapt our model for the 21st century. Uh, and there are things like pop-up bookstores and 501c3 nonprofits and owner co-ops instead of member-owned co-ops. Uh, and, and there are all these different ideas about how to go forward. And, and, and we're in touch. I mean, a lot of us talk regularly about this. Uh, and there's an acknowledgement that the system, uh, or the system is broken uh, and is only getting worse. Um, so I'm optimistic because whether it's our model, uh, or I should say because our model along with these other models will shift the conversation. And uh, we know that 10 years from now, the prevailing book selling model can't work. There's just no, like the math doesn't work with the rising cost of living, occupancy costs, minimum wage costs, which are all, uh, especially minimum wage, is a very good thing uh, that, that that's rising. So like what, uh, what will the future bookseller be able to do? And we're trying to answer that question from a place of strength and acknowledging, not apologizing for, but acknowledging the strength of our work, our spaces that we create, and the entire endeavor uh, that is needed now as much as ever. And we are confident that we can build something like booksellers have always been able to evolve. Uh, we're confident we can build something that uh, will allow us to thrive in the future. Well, I, I really hope that that's true. And in fact, I will hope to be able to help you do that in some way because I think it is actually hugely important. Well, you, you've been an inspiration. I mean, your career and what you've done has been an inspiration. And I think that that uh, legacy that you're leaving is one that we're trying to, uh, you know, pick up and continue and, uh, and that, you, you know, you're continuing to evolve with it, but also recognizing that uh, what would it mean for someone to develop a career like yours in this day and age? Uh, we want to make sure that those opportunities are out there. So thank, thank you for, for what saying. you've done to get us here. Yeah. Well, but I, I think that you, you know, you represent, you know, a, a kind of optimistic um, opportunity. And I think that, um, you know, I, I'd like to make sure, or, or at least I'd like to be able to contribute and help you, uh, e even if it's only by letting other people know that this is going on. So, um, you know, I'm going to say that if it's all right with you, anyone listening who's interested in this possibility or in you know pursuing what it might look like to participate in a uh, a kind of uh, reconfiguration of bookselling into a nonprofit mission driven form uh, is it okay if they contact you oh that'd be great absolutely terrific well thank you jeff it has really been a pleasure this has been a really interesting conversation for me Thank you for taking the time because I know you're busy. You're in the process of reopening the store to um, mm -hmm. people coming in, which is a wonderful thing to celebrate. Um, and I, but I know it, it's it's an exhausting piece of work. So thank you for taking some time to talk to me. No, it's my pleasure, and thank you for all you're doing on behalf of this beleaguered <laughs> and beloved community. So we, we appreciate it. 
All right. Thanks, Jeff. This has been Publishing Talks, a podcast about books and publishing. I'm David Wilk. I've been talking to Jeff Deutsch from the uh, Seminary Co-op Bookstore in Chicago. You should go visit. <laughs> Take care. <laughs>